It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. And I'm Vicky. And welcome to our cute little murder corner. We're going to have fun. The murder <laughs> corner. We're talking about some weird shit today. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, this will be... I'm actually kind of looking forward to this one, because I definitely found a story I was not familiar with, and I think... I'm going to rely on you for some uh, old-timey expertise. Oh, sweet. Mine's also old-timey, so we're going to yeah. have a lot of old-timey radio voices, so buckle up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but first, let's head over to the newsroom. So our news this week comes from Business Insider Africa, where... You're taking us all over the world, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it's from Business Insider Africa, but it's actually about a German man. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like everywhere. We went to Sri Lanka last time. We're going through Africa to Germany. (laughs) I'm trying to make sure we stay well-rounded and worldly. We are people of the world. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So, an 84-year-old German man has been convicted of illegal weapons possession and fined 293,972 US dollars with a suspended prison sentence of 14 months. The charges stem from a 2015 investigation into his home in Heikendorf and revealed that he had been stashing a World War II era Panther tank in his basement. As well as hordes of ammunition. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So back in 2015, when this had gone to court originally, it was decided that he must sell or donate the tank and anti-aircraft cannon to a museum or collector within the next two years. As you might have guessed, uh, he did not do that. It's a, but you could give it to a collector though. What if he becomes a collector? 
that's what I was wondering. And Period. that's, Great I'll area. be honest, like, that's not totally clear to me if there's mm-hmm. like sort a special <laughs> distinction, especially because it's in Germany and it deals yes. with World War II. Like, I wonder if there's like a, spe- very a special, mm-hmm. yeah, like if you have to register as a collector or something. Yeah, they, um, they usually get rid of a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> it's like, we're just yes. going to pretend that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> so it took 20 soldiers nine hours to remove the trove of military hardware from the unnamed man's home. In addition to the tank and the anti-aircraft cannon and all of the ammunition, they also found a horde of Nazi memorabilia, including a bust of Hitler, mannequins Whoa. in Nazi uniforms, swastika pendants, SS rune-shaped lamps, and a statue of a naked warrior holding a sword in his extended hand that once stood outside Hitler's chancellor- chancellery in Berlin. Now that sounds like a collection. Are you sure he's not yes. a collector? But it also sounds like he might be a closeted Nazi. <laughs> right. That's why I'm like, ooh. It was less weird when it was like, we like honestly it seemed less weird when it was just tanks and, and weapons right and then you <laughs> but have then it's like it got but also all this nazi a, shit yeah when you said it was military uniforms on mannequins not just like folded up in someone's trunk like put away great grandpa's memories like literally on display like right. madame tuto's <laughs> wax museum <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think there is something to be said for like preserving that part of history. Like that mm-hmm. cool, but at the same time like if that is a thing in Germany where you have to register as a collector, it 2 years to me seems like ample enough time to like get all of that in order and didn't and just continue to display these things. It's like, well, he might be a well, Nazi. I don't know if you can do this in Germany, but you can do this in a lot of other places where you put your private collection on loan indefinitely, mm-hmm. basically to a museum. So you could say, yeah. I'm still keeping it, but you can house it and put it on display if you want. So I feel like yeah. that would be another option if he really was just specifically interested in the historical aspects of it. But now it sounds like it's more that he's a Nazi. (laughs) Yeah. Another interesting thing about this is that the mayor of Heikendorf, Alexander Orth, said that the man had also driven the tank as a snowplow in 1978. (laughs) See, that just sounds like good old-fashioned fun. I have a little tank, and I'm going to turn it a snowplow. Right. I'm thinking... (laughs) Only, well, I wouldn't say only in Germany. You'd probably see this in Russia, too, but, like... Honestly, you'll probably see it here. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. Oh, my I God, mean, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I guess, Nazi news, maybe. <laughs> Let's never have Nazi news corner again. <laughs> so, this week, I wanted to do something a little bit different uh, oh with boy, our okay. Netflix and Kill segment, because... <laughs> Janelle and I consume a lot of content in various forms. Oh, yes. Especially now that I have to be at school watching students to make sure they don't cut themselves up. I got to put some nice, gentle podcasts in the background (laughs) as to not distract them. (laughs) So this week, we are going to do a segment called Bloody Good Reads, where... 
I like I books. think this would give us <laughs> an opportunity because Janelle and I are both readers. Mm-hmm. I usually try to do one book per episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I will say with audiobooks and Audible and all that fun stuff, like reading for me has become a lot easier because it's less time consuming, I guess. Like mm-hmm. I have the time to listen to something. I don't necessarily always have the time to read something. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to kind of like a, like provide us a little outlet for when we read something really good that we can share it with you guys. So Netflix and Kill is not dead and gone. It'll definitely be back because there's constantly content coming out for all of our streaming services. Mm-hmm. But this week we're talking about books because <laughs> I just finished or I, I should say I'm close to finishing People Who Eat Darkness by Lloyd Perry. Now, this is the story of Lucy Blackman, who was a former flight attendant who moved to Japan for a period of time working in Tokyo's Roppongi Entertainment District. Now, Roppongi is kind of considered like, I wouldn't necessarily say like the seedy underbelly, but there's it's it's sort of like the epicenter for Is it like the red light district in Amsterdam? Yes. Okay. <laughs> However, like the red light district sort of like makes you think of strictly sex trade. Mm-hmm. Well, and drugs. Yes. <laughs> yes. A lot of drugs in there. <laughs> yes. But I will say like the sex trade industry in Japan is a lot more complicated than it is in a lot of places because of this like nuance that Japan has with sexuality and like traditional values. Like it is kind of a little bit more complicated and the spectrum of the type of sex work that you could do is really broad. So what I will say off the bat is um, Lucy Blackman was in Japan working as a hostess, which is not a sexual job. It's more of companionship. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. filling drinks and lighting cigarettes and providing conversation and in no way like a sexual transaction. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of considered one of these things that's like. It's like borderline. It's like being a cocktail waitress at a strip club. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Pretty you're much, around, pretty much. You're around it, but you're not necessarily doing it. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I will say, too, like, a lot of the women who work as hostesses in Rapangi are what they would say, call Western women. So they're either European or American or from the UK that come over to Japan to make money. And that's what she was there to do. She was there to make money to pay off some of her debts from back home. She decides to go and meet a client outside of business hours, which is actually a regular practice um, to bring in more income. Like the clubs kind of endorse this kind of thing. And it actually is for the most part, like safe. They do take very good care of, of their hostesses, Mm -hmm. but she goes to meet a client outside of business hours and doesn't return. She goes missing. The only lead that the police have is this really strange phone call to her friend and roommate who had claimed that Lucy had joined a cult and wasn't coming back. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Yes. So I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to spoil the story for you. But I really, really enjoyed 
this book because Lloyd Perry, the author, is actually the Tokyo bureau chief for the Times of London. So he was in Japan reporting on the story as it developed and then wrote this book later after the trials were done and she had been found and all of this other stuff. She, I will say, was killed. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoiler. Yes. But, Spoilers on a murder podcast. <laughs> yes, right. But I, the reason I think it's also really interesting is because it provides a lot of background information on this kind of like, like the Rapongi district and sort of the sex trade industry in Japan. There's a lot of nuance with Lucy Blackman's parents who were divorced at the time of her disappearance and kind of how they handled things. Differences in the way that the United Kingdom and Japan sort of deal with like the press and police investigations. But it also takes this really interesting look at Japan's police force in general because they kind of have this appearance of being very strict and like low crime rates and all of this stuff when in reality, it's just that there's a lot of looking the other way and yeah. some kind of, you know, sketchy police work and some other things. So it really does a nice job of sort of looking at the whole picture in the context of this case, especially since it was a foreigner that got kidnapped in another country. And I definitely, I would definitely recommend it. I will say it's not for the faint of heart. It does get very intense. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. But it's called People Who Eat Darkness. It's by Lloyd Perry. Highly recommend it. Nice. And hopefully you guys like us talking about books, because really, like, I know you, Janelle, read a lot. I work at a flipping library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I do an inordinate amount of research for school. I have so many books in the backseat of my car right now and in front of me and around me piled up. <laughs> <laughs> so what I will say is I think occasionally we'll do bloody good reads. We'll talk about some books and we'll still do netflix and kill you'll just you know we'll change it up every once in a while yeah don't worry change can be good sometimes good. <laughs> variety is the spice of life they say mm. says an old yes. man <laughs> all right so <laughs> this is a part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners we'll be talking about some interesting things i, mean, I would say not necessarily Murder in a classic sense. <laughs> no, but definitely death. Yes. Uh, horrible, gruesome death. Yes. So, Janelle, what are we talking about today? Well, you know, I love to just mix it up so yes. hard and yes. confuse you and upset you with my choices. <laughs> yeah, uh, I will say this is definitely one of those that I was like, God damn it, Jill. <laughs> I tell you what, I like to talk about very specific things. So yes, <laughs> I decided to do an episode about killer careers or jobs that straight up murder you. It, this is probably me exercising some existential dread about working, but... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I've said before, I, I work in a library. I used to work at a museum. I kind of, uh, I have lots of jobs. So I've been in different like sectors. I've, I worked in retail. I've worked in food service. I am sticking to the nonprofit sector. It's where I like to work. But, you know, some people 
back-to-work jobs that are not so great. And I wanted yes. to kind of like highlight this and also highlight the way that companies and also cities or countries or governments handle labor and issues with labor because it's super important. I don't know if you know this, Vicky, I'm an anarchist. Uh- <laughs> yeah, right. I definitely feel like this is going to be a big soapbox episode. Yeah. So, you know, people who have to work for a living, I don't like it. I don't like that we have to exist. We have to work to exist. I think it's fucking terrible and wrong and corrupt. But if we could highlight stuff like this and maybe hopefully change things so that people can work if they'd like to at a, at a nice rate, have a separation of their home life and their work life, have proper child care, have good medical insurance, all those wonderful things that we should have, but we don't, I, I'd like to do that by telling yes. the stories. <laughs> yes. So the particular story I'm going to talk about today um, was something I read about first when I was in middle school. And kind of rekindled it because I saw a made-for-TV movie recently about it. And we're going to talk about the Radium Girls. Now, a lot of people are familiar with this. Um, yes. Do you, are you particularly uh, know about the Radium Girls? Yeah, so I have like a general knowledge. I would say probably about similar to a lot of people where it's like, yep, yeah, I'm familiar, but I don't know the in-depth, super in-depth. Yes. Story. And this this story in particular takes place in Illinois and New Jersey somewhat at the same time. But I am Ooh. only going to concentrate on the Illinois aspect of it. Okay. Um, I'll mention a little bit of New Jersey because they kind of help kick off what happens in Illinois. But our tale in particular will be taking place in Ottawa, Illinois, just after the end of World War One, And this is the story of girls who are just working gals who then become known as the Radium Girls. In 1914, the United States Radium Corporation, also known as Radium Luminous Material Cooperation, was mining radium ore, and they had a lot of it. They were really sure what they were going to do with it. But in 1917, they began to market luminescent paint. That was where they were really going to concentrate. And it's also known as glow-in-the-dark paint. Sounds fancy. Sounds very fancy. Now, this wasn't the only use for radium at the time. Other companies also started making stuff and marketing radium for various things like toothpaste and hair cream and health tonics and makeup and even a cure for cancer. Oh, my God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what radium is. I don't know if you might remember Marie Curie. I remember dressing up as Marie Curie in middle school, which is why I know about radium girls. (laughs) I am not surprised by that in the slightest. (laughs) We had to do some project where we picked a famous person, and me being the absolute raging middle school feminist, apparently, I picked Marie Curie. Yeah, dude, that was uh, fourth grade, and (laughs) I chose Jackie Joyner Kersey. So uh, she died from all of the exposure that she had while working with fucking radium. (laughs) Uh, But a very intelligent scientific woman. Yes. Now, radium is highly radioactive. It actually causes cancer. So the fact that they were marketing it as a cure for cancer is quite fucking hilarious. And it's just this terrible thing that just makes you sick. It just makes you sick and often leads to you dying if you come in contact with it. So I don't know why we're trying to handle it. 
So all of these products were being pushed for consumption with the corporations full well knowing that prolonged exposure or ingestion could lead to straight up skulls and crossbones. You gonna die. Yeah. Now, after World War I, the radium companies pushed these products even further, especially the luminescent paint. Uh, several watch factories were set up in New Jersey and Ottawa, Illinois, using the glow-in-the-dark paint on their dials. Now, this was touted as like a super far superior watch because you could tell time in the dark. And I'm going to read this old-timey news advertisement so you can see how they were marketing this and why it might sound like fun and exciting. Oh now, prepare God. yourself for my old-timey radio voice, okay? Here we go. I'm, I'm prepared. <laughs> The power of radium at your disposal. 23 years ago, radium was unknown. Today, thanks to constant laboratory work, the power of this most unusual of elements is at your disposal. Through the medium of undark, radium serves you safely and surely. Does undark really contain radium? Most assuredly, it is radium combined in exactly the proper <laughs> manner with zinc sulfide, which gives Undark its ability to shine continuously in the dark. Does it contain radium? It is radium. It is straight up fucking radium. <laughs> Manufacturers have been quick to recognize the value of Undark. They apply it to the dials of watches and clocks, to electric push buttons, to the buckles of bedroom slippers. To house numbers, flashlights, compasses, gasoline gauges, autometers, and many other articles which you frequently wish to see in the dark. The next time you fumble for a lighting switch, bark your shins on furniture. Wonder vainly what time it is because of the dark. Remember Undark. It shines in the dark. Dealers can supply you with undarked articles. <laughs> For interesting little folder telling of the production of radium and the uses of Undark, address the Radium Luminous Material Corporation. I love the term, <laughs> they can supply you with undarked articles. Right? Just making up fucking words. And I just love how they list all the things that they are painting radium on. Buckles of on bedroom slippers? Button, right? Really? On every button you conceivably have or every dial you ever look at and everything that's made of metal. Yeah. We're going to paint it with radium, boys. <laughs> oh, my God. So the plant in Ottawa, Illinois, opened in 1922. So a little bit after the, the boom of the radium. And it moved briefly. It was located in Chicago and it moved out to Ottawa because it was going to be a little bit closer to some of the watch manufacturers. Now, if you live in the area, you know, there's a shit ton of watch manufacturers around here. Elgin in particular, Elgin watches, like biggest watch manufacturer of the time period. I don't think they actually used any radium glow in the dark paint. Okay. But a lot of the other watchmakers did. Now, the watches would first be assembled and then they would be painted at the radium dial company. Now, this company started with 70-plus women to paint the dials, with all of the managers being men. Of course. Women were hired because of their small hands and delicate nature, which made them perfect to paint watch tiny dials. Oh, my dials. God. Yeah. <laughs> so, at the height of production, the Radium Dial Company employed around 1,000 young women who turned out around 4,300 dials each day. They employed girls as young as 15, with most being between the ages of 18 and 24. The women were paid per dial painted, so per piece. And they okay. were taught the technique called the dip to lip. 
Now, what do you think the dip to lip means? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm pretty sure it's exactly what it sounds like. Dip yep. lip. So they would dip a fine pointed brush into the radium paint, then pucker their lips, sucking the end of the brush to a fine tip while also ingesting a bit of the paint. This was to make it so pointed that they could create the finest line. Now, there's a picture here of a woman showing another worker how to do the the dip-to-lip method. The dip-to-lip. Just straight up sticking a wet paintbrush in your mouth. Yup. Now, the first death of a dial painter actually wasn't at the plant in in Illinois. It was actually at the plant in Orange, New Jersey. Now, Molly Maggia was the first dial painter to die, and she passed away on September 12th of 1922. With what started as just a toothache that eventually would not go away, it began to move up her jaw. This is, I'm going to describe what happened to these women, and it's going to be very triggering and upsetting, and there's going to be a picture of Vicky that you might not want to see. Oh. So just to warn you, it's going to be very upsetting. Now, her jaw was all fucked up, and the bone began to deteriorate and had to be removed. Despite many visits to dentists and doctors, Molly's disease progressed so much that it included fatigue and debilitating joint pain all over her body, and then she suddenly died. The coroner, and this is where it's going to get really fucking aggravating, the coroner declared her death was from syphilis. Yeah... That's not how that works. Um, Now, her family and her best friend, Grace, refused to believe this conclusion. And after much fight, one year later, her friend, Grace, began to have the exact same symptoms as her. Now, slowly, others began to have problems, too, in the plant, even those who had left the job and only worked there for a brief period of time. Now, this began to snowball into a problem for the New Jersey company, but... It didn't quite make its way to Illinois yet. They weren't fully aware of what was going on. If you want to read more about that, um, specifically New Jersey, I would suggest the book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of Americans Shining Women. They chronicle everything that happens in New Jersey and everything that happens in Illinois. The New Jersey story is very detailed and involves so many people. So I only wanted to concentrate on Illinois. Now, that's popping off. But the workers at the Ottawa plant were blissfully unaware that they were being poisoned as well. Radium dial management immediately authorized physicals and other tests to determine the toxicity of radium paint to the employees. Or so they thought they were going to do. The company never actually gave those records to the employees or told them of their results. In fact, some of them say that they just immediately disposed of the information upon giving them the tests. Wow. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) Yeah, great. In a half-assed attempt to cover themselves up, they ended up kind of switching the brushes out to these fine camel hair pointed brushes to a glass pen with a fine metal tip. The workers found that these pens slowed down their productivity and they reverted back to using the brushes because they weren't really told why they were switching from uh, the brush to the glass tip. Yeah. And they were getting paid per piece. So Right. I was going to say, in fairness, (laughs) when you're getting paid per piece that you do and they decide well we're gonna switch out the sink to make you work slower right it's like that's my money exactly it's like getting it double you know yeah so the workers were just like i don't want to use this so they go back to the the brushes when word of the new jersey women and their suits appeared in local newspapers 
The women at the Ottawa plant were told that radium was safe and that employees in New Jersey were showing signs of a viral infection that was being passed around. So that's like cover-up number three. Now, the women of Ottawa did not believe this bullshit. And in particular, Catherine Donahue was outraged that the company was being so blasé about everything that was going on. Her fellow co-worker, Charlotte Purcell, was also pissed off. And the two became really integral in the fight against the radium dial company. Now, Margaret Peg Looney was the first one of the Ottawa painters to die from radium poisoning. Looney started working at Radium Dial when she was 17 years old, and she worked there for six years until her death in August of 1929. Her family recalled Peg bringing home vials of the paint to paint her nails and to paint in her room. Oh my gosh. So it kind of started the same as the other people with a toothache. So she had a tooth removed, but the site where her tooth was removed never healed. So she just had a gaping open wound in her mouth continuously. She became anemic and couldn't walk from the excruciating hip pain she had. Wow. Her teeth and bits of her jawbone began to fall out. And her fiancé used to have to pull her around the neighborhood in a wagon because she was too ill to walk on her own. Oh, my God. This is a quote from the the book. Uh, She collapsed at work one day and they sent her to a company hospital. Her family was not allowed to visit. They were told she had diphtheria and was quarantined. She then passed away. The company wanted Peg to be buried right away, and the family grew suspicious and insisted on having a Catholic funeral. The company agreed that the family could have their doctor present at the autopsy, but when he arrived, it was already completed. The family was determined to sue. Which, it's also kind of fucked up that the company has any say in, like, an autopsy? (laughs) So this is the funny thing about all of this. All of these women who were seeing these doctors were seeing company doctors and dentists. Now, this is how healthcare was handled back then. If you wanted your healthcare taken care of, you saw who they told you to see. And those doctors told you what the company wanted them to tell you. So these doctors knew that these women were being poisoned and did not tell them that they were being poisoned and instead told them they were having all sorts of different diseases, infections, everything under the sun, but the truth. So, oh my God, I'm not surprised because, you know, this is still at a time where workers' rights is non-existent. This is right after, you know, another wave of workers' rights. And you're coming out of World War I, where the predominant workforce was women during that time period. Yeah. And there are absolutely no you know, workers' rights for women specifically. So you have all of these things compounding on top of each other. And it's just, it's it's going to get real bad. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be more and more people dying. So there's a couple pictures I have that are uh, coming up that are going to be, uh, I think, I mean, they were gut-wrenching for me. I didn't put in the really explicit photos of pictures of women's faces, like, half gone. Mm-hmm. But there are pictures in the book, and there are pictures that you can see on the Radium Girls website. Um, The book is by Kate Moore, and it's a really, really good chronicling of it. Um, And she does a really great job of getting a lot of the background story and information about the workers. So they're not just names. Like, she tells the story of their lives, which is really uh, great. Um, And a lot of times when we cover cases people's, you know, life kind of get erased and they just become a name on a list. So, yeah, 
I suggest looking into it more and getting to know like all of these characters in this crazy story because they did a lot to not just get this corporation taken down, but to really progress workers' rights in factories even further. So Catherine Donahue started to begin to exhibit symptoms in 1925, so a couple years after the first woman passed away. And she knew from watching Peg that, and the news from New Jersey that she was dying from radium poisoning. She began with severe joint pain, which forced her to limp, and she lost half of her body weight. She was like 100 pounds when she died. Not even. I think she was like 96, actually. Parts of her jaw fell out. She couldn't eat and became completely bedridden. And a local doctor couldn't diagnose her because she decided to go to somebody else. But the doctor did deny that Donahue had radium poisoning. Now, she decided to get another opinion. And later, she went to a doctor in Chicago who confirmed that she did have radium poisoning. Most of the painters had began to experience these symptoms as well, so she wasn't the only one. And they included weight loss, anemia, broken bones, jaws disintegrating, sarcomas of the jaw and lip, which is like big um, tumors, and holes in their face filled with pus, amputation that was due to necrosis, and tooth loss. It was not uncommon for these women to visit the doctors and be completely misdiagnosed, Um, And a lot of times they were told that they were completely fine and even healthy, which is like, um, I have a giant hole in my fucking face. So like, how am I healthy? Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) So this picture that I have here is from a newspaper article. And this is Catherine Donahue after she basically became bedridden. And I don't know if you could tell I'm blowing up the picture a little bit so we can see. It looks like a mannequin that has no legs because her bottom half of her body wasted away so much that all you see is like her hands and her arms. She's practically nothing. Yeah. It was, it was extremely like I had to go through and see these pictures that I was reading newspaper articles and the fact like the newspaper articles, you know, they're not going to censor anything. They're going to be like, this is what these people look like. It's 1927. So it's, it's a little bit gut wrenching. It's pretty gruesome. um, Especially when you see some of the more extreme, like missing jaws or like the sarcoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sarcoma just, pictures are really bad. I did not yeah. here <laughs> yeah. on purpose. Yeah. So in 1927, that same year, five former dial painters led by Catherine Donahue and represented by lawyer Leonard Grossman, who was working pro bono, filed a legal case against the U.S. Radium Corporation. During the case, the body of Molly Maggio was exhumed and taken for an autopsy. Now, according to Moore, who was the person who wrote this book, (laughs) in her research, she um, said that Maggia's body was in a good state of preservation five years after her death. So the autopsy stated that her body was like pretty much preserved, which is not normal. This was also back when like there wasn't a whole lot of difference of people, um, you know, having their what what they would do to the bodies after death. It was not much different than Victorian times. Nowadays, when you go to a funeral parlor, you're getting all kinds of stuff pumped in and out of you. But this is like the beginning yeah. of that. So most people didn't have that option. Yeah. Now, the autopsy proved that every single piece of tissue and bone in Molly Maggia's body was radioactive. Wow. 
Catherine Donahue gave testimony in a deposition from her bedside because she was unable to walk. And there's a picture of her deposition down there. She's laying in her bed with propped up on a pillow and people are taking notes and asking her questions. It was this very intense scene that was put into a newspaper and people, like it was said that people literally wept upon just looking at the picture before they even read the article. Now, Donahue gave this testimony and the newspaper started calling them the Society of the Living Dead. And they kind of reported this and... It wasn't until like 1938 when things started to really roll in this case. Okay, so we're talking about she started getting sick in 1927, and things didn't start happening until almost 10 years later, more than that. Wow, Jesus. It's, it's fucked up. Now, the Illinois passed a Illinois Occupational Disease Act because of these women, and they tried several times to get this taken to court and eventually they were able to get the court to the case to court in late 1938. It took eight appeals before the former radium girls finally had a victory in October of 1939. The lasting legacy of these women's fight led to the introduction of new safety standards to protect a whole new generation of dial painters, as well as those working with plutonium and making atomic bombs because Again, radioactive stuff. People were just like, whatever. Yeah. In an article from NPR, um, I'm just going to read this interesting information here for you. The women won, but at a great personal cost. The town didn't really want to acknowledge what had happened. That was certainly true in the time the women were prosecuting the case. Their evidence in letters that their neighbors, the clergy, and business people shunned them. It was the Great Depression, and Radium Dial was providing well-paying jobs. Locals kind of wanted the women to put up and shut up. Although they had won, the women's individual financial awards were fairly small. The company only had to pay $10,000 total to the women because it fled the state and started a business in New York. There was no way the Illinois Industrial Commission could reach across state lines and grab assets. Wow. Some of the women got nothing at all. Radium Dial unsuccessfully appealed the, the decision many times up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Donahue, unfortunately, died before the appeals were finished. Man, I sometimes it's like really easy. Reading that. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to forget like how fucked up a lot of these things were like back in the day and the fact that mm -hmm. they were just like all right we're just gonna move our company to, to uh to new york and not have to like worry about it like yeah, that I mean, is crazy like that happens panama Papers. yeah anyway. well, right <laughs> yeah but i mean you literally have to move out of the country like you wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to just like move to another part of the country and not be held responsible yeah you would now, literally have to like leave you would think that's where the story ends but unfortunately, it's not. We're actually still reading, uh, dealing with the Radium Dial company. The Radium Dial's president, Joseph Kelly, was ousted in 1934. He opened another company to produce radium clock dials, and he called it the Luminous Processes, and, lo and it was located in Ottawa, just a few blocks away from the other Radium Dial. They hired a lot of the same girls, and eventually... Radium dial went out of business, but luminous processes didn't go out of business until 1976. Wow. That's not that long ago. <laughs> no. 
The same year Luminous Processes closed in Ottawa in 1976, Peg Looney's body was exhumed. U.S. Atomic Energy Commission began to study radiation effects on humans, and dial painters, living and dead, were the, the perfect subjects for their study. So the Looney's family gave permission to have her body exhumed and researched, and the family was told that they brought her body back encased in lead because she was so radioactive. Wow. The dial painters started the movement that eventually led to the adoption of the OSHA Act in 1971. So you're seeing major things happening because of all of these women were fucking poisoned. Now, the old radium dial company building, after it closed, became a meatpacking plant and then a farmer's okay, co-op that sounds safe. before it Yep, before it eventually closed. Yeah, that sounds wicked safe. I don't know if you know about radium, um, but it doesn't really have like a half-life. Like, it just keeps going. Yeah. Um, So you have to bury it in the ground under lead um, so that it doesn't seep out. So in the same building where all this lead paint was, they put a meat processing facility in there. Oh, my God. Yep, the building was finally demolitioned in 1968, which sounds great, right? Except I, they did nothing with the rubble. <laughs> yeah. I just In fact, they actually took some of it and used it as a landfill around Ottawa. It it definitely <laughs> gives me like Chernobyl vibes, right? Like that is still percent. ground that they can't do anything with because mm-hmm. it is so radiated that You can't, like, they couldn't even go in there for years and years and years. The people who are working on Chernobyl, like, right after the plant exploded, most of them died, like, pretty quickly. (laughs) Most, if not all of them. You know what I mean? It was like, you just couldn't. So the fact that they're just like, well, we'll put a meatpacking place in here. It's like, wow. Wow. Yeah. So they they used some of the the contaminated rubble to backfill land around uh, Ottawa, and the Luminous Processes building was also eventually used as a meat locker before the company closed in 1976. Thank God. Why do we have radioactive meat? <laughs> Why? What? You mean you don't want to eat glowing meat? I mean, the buildings were filled with radioactive particles from top to fucking bottom. That stuff doesn't go away. And when you kick up no. dust, you're just kicking up radiation more and more and more. It's like, how stupid are you? Yeah. So in we're gonna we're gonna jump forward to 1982 now. Ken Ricci, uh, just some dude who lives in Ottawa, who bought a Geiger counter at a garage sale and began walking around Ottawa with it because he'd heard stories of the radium dials and all of the radium girls. So he's like, I wonder whatever happened to that radium. Mm-hmm. Now, the counter, which measures radiation, if you don't know what a Geiger counter is, was going off the charts in almost every fucking place in Ottawa. Of course. Now, Ricci was actually part of a group called the Residents Against a Polluted Environment. Now, originally, this group was put together to fight hazardous waste landfills that were proposed around the area. So they were going to put a hazardous waste landfill out there t- so people could get rid of radioactive stuff. And they were like, no, no, no. Little did they know, it was already contaminated, actually. Most people knew that. Oh, my God. The group's focus shifted to radiation contamination after Ricci began to find his hotspots with the Geiger counter. 
And the group went to the mayor to ask that a fence be put around the then abandoned luminous process building where most of the radiation was being originated from. The state representative for the area, Peg Breslin, got involved and later a documentary called Radium City was produced about the plight of the radium dial workers and the contamination the companies had left behind. Now, Breslin pushed for state funding to tear down the Luminous Processes building and to haul the rubble to a toxic waste landfill in the state of Washington in 1985. So they were like, we need to get this shit out of here and we need to do it right now. So the next year, the U.S. Department of Energy, at the request of the state, they flew a helicopter over Ottawa and identified with a Geiger counter 14 hotspots. Oh, my God. Now, the EPA did a two-month investigation into what caused the contamination and determining that it was actually from the two dial factories. No shit. Of course, right. (laughs) When the first clock factory in Ottawa, radium dial, was demolished more than a decade prior, some of the rubble, obviously, we said, was moved around. So that's why we're getting all of these hot spots. Much of the rest of what was left was thrown into the city dump. So... Great. The areas cool, cool. needed to be remediated, which means <laughs> fucking removed. By the time the EPA determined the cause, both radium dial and luminous processes were completely defunct and they couldn't be sued for damages. So it's like all these taxpayers were left to fucking pay for it and deal with their consequences. Oh, my God. In 1994, the EPA, working with the IDNS, began removing radium contaminated soil from the radioactive areas. The material removed was shipped to a radioactive disposal facility in Utah. And removal activities were completed at nine areas out of the 14 areas. And there was approximately 32,000 cubic yards of radioactive soil and debris that were removed. Wow. Now, I wish I could say that everything had been done because... That article was from 1994, but unfortunately, the latest article that I read, which is from 2019, stated that they were still cleaning up the last two sites, and they could not determine when that they would be finished. Okay, so note to self, I'm not going to Ottawa anytime soon. Yes, so please don't visit Ottawa, Illinois. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, the Illinois Radium Girls. I, d- I guess I didn't realize that there was any based in Illinois. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, it's That's nuts. Up. So stay away from Ottawa, Illinois. And if you ever see anything by the radium dial or luminous processes company, don't fucking touch it. <laughs> wow. What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it. Open a CQ checking account and get $250 to spend freely. And that's not all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. Visit secumd.org today. So I kind of I kind of wanted to start off with just a little venture into what are like currently because now we've come quite a long way i would say in safety standards especially with the advent of osha Mm -hmm. what are the 10 most dangerous jobs currently in america which this list has not changed in like like two or three years now this is according to 
information from Amazon the, workers. No. <laughs> yes, right. Right. Um, information yeah. from the Bureau of Labor St- Statistics. Mm-hmm. So number 10 is first line supervisors of landscaping, law service, and groundskeeping workers. Mm-hmm. Mainly because they spend a lot of time traveling from site to site and it increases the amount of auto accidents. Oh, not because they're dealing with pesticides? No. <laughs> just okay. that just that it's like higher risk um for transportation related accidents, which is one of the lar- largest causes of death. Then you've got first-line supervisors of construction trades and extraction workers, structural iron and steel workers, farmers, ranchers, and other agricultural workers, driver sales workers, and truck drivers. And again, a lot of this comes down to auto accidents. Farmers, not so much. That's like, you know, big machinery and shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, getting caught and stuff. Yeah. Refuse and recyclable materials collectors. Again, auto accidents. Uh, roofers, for obvious reasons, aircraft pilots and flight engineers, fishers and related fishing workers, and finally logging workers. So I don't, I don't think that there's really any surprises on there. You know, I think some people might be surprised that like frontline responders are not on there, or like police officers or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like realistically the fatalities are just not as high and in fact yeah i was just reading an article the other day that actually the highest at currently the highest rate of death highest cause of death for like police officers at the moment is COVID 19 and not like <laughs> i know it's crazy sure um, is. And, and not like you know police involved shootings it's actually COVID 19 but anyway that's besides the point so I think the fact that a lot of these are like, well, it's because they travel from job site to job site and they're a higher risk for auto accidents really speaks to how far our country has come as far as um, regulations for labor safety. And so with that in mind, I wanted to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. So hell the, yeah. The year <laughs> is 1911 and shirtwaists are still wildly in fashion. So for those who are not familiar, shirtwaists were cotton blouses requiring no corsets or hoops. You can do you want to give a little like explanation of what a shirtwaist is, what it looks like? It's like an everyday woman's like working garb. It's like um what they would refer to as, like, day dresses in the 40s and 50s. It's, like, your very basic, not fancy, plain. I'm pretty sure it was cut from, wasn't it cut from, like, a single cloth or something? Um, it might have been. Yeah, it, like, required less fabric for the patterns. Yeah, you also, because you didn't have to wear a corset or anything, you just tucked the bottom of it into your skirt. Mm -hmm. I personally, I really like the look of shirtwaists i think they're really cute and that kind of style is pretty cool but it's not like anything you would see now at Mm -hmm. all so the largest shirtwaist manufacturer in new york in new york state was the triangle shirtwaist factory owned by max blanc and isaac harris this was located in what is now greenwich village in the ash building 
The Ash Building was built in 1901, and it was advertised as a fireproof building, which is really impossible. <laughs> I, I know. But it also like attracted all of these textile manufacturers because they're like, awesome, our shit won't be on fire because we're in a fireproof building. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was located in the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the building, which were the top three floors of the building. Now, when you think of a sweatshop, <laughs> the exact image that you conjure in your head was the Triangle Firm. Like that mm-hmm. was exactly what was set up here. They did a lot of shady stuff. <laughs> yes. The production line attracted primarily young immigrant women from Europe. I believe it was primarily Italian and Jewish women um, yep. who sat in tight rows of sewing machines. There's this really great article from the AFL-CIO, which for those of you not from the U.S., is the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations that gives this really great description of what the working conditions were like. Quote, the shirtwaist makers, as young as age 15, worked seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. with a half-hour lunch break. During the busy season, the work was nearly nonstop. They were paid about $6 per week. In some cases, they were required to use their own needles, thread, irons, and occasionally their own sewing machines. The yeah. factories were also unsanitary. At the Triangle Factory, women had to leave the building to use the bathroom, so management began locking the steel exit doors to prevent the interruption of work, and only the foreman had the key. Sounds super safe. Yeah, it was. it's kind of similar with like the way that the radium dial painters were, where they were like getting paid per like piece, and they had to buy all their supplies, which is like fucking insane. Right. <laughs> Right. And it's like, and after all of that, you won't even let me go to the fucking bathroom when I need to go. Like, it's just absurd to me. So as you can see, like, there is a whole host of things already that are piling up. Like, I don't feel so great about the situation. So in addition to the locked doors, which was also used as they locked the doors to prevent theft. Mm hmm. There was only one fully operational elevator among the four elevators total in the building, and the workers had to file down a single long hallway to reach it. Blanc and Harris themselves had an interesting history in their time owning factories. The Triangle Factory itself had already had two fires in 1902, and then their other company, Diamond Waste, burned twice in 1907 and 1910. Mm-hmm. There was lots of fucking factory fires, like an insane amount of factory fires. Yes. For various reasons. Some of them accidents, some of them not so accidental. Straight up negligence and insurance fraud. <laughs> exactly. So according to History.com, quote, it seems Blanc and Harris deliberately torched their workplaces before business hours in order to collect on the large fire insurance policies they had purchased, a not uncommon practice in the early 20th century. And this practice actually led Blanc and Harris to refuse to install sprinkler systems and other fire safety measures just in case they needed to burn it down. Yep. Yeah, they wouldn't even have the standard bucket of water. No. Which is like the lowest of the low of like preventing fires. It was just an open bucket of water. 
Yeah, which is just like, well, you know, in case we need money in the future and we need to burn this place down, like we I don't want to stop that fire. We want to spread that fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I that just blew my mind. Triangle also stored flammable chemicals just right on the production floor, incredibly close to all of the fam- flammable fabric clippings that just littered the production floor. Not great. So all of this leads up to on March 25th, 1911, a single spark is all it took to ignite fabrics underneath one of the work bins on the eighth floor. Mm-hmm. The flame spread yeah. to the tissue paper shirt patterns that were hanging mm-hmm. from the ceiling. Yes, yeah, so you have all natural fibers and you have paper. And it's like, so I don't know if you're familiar with the setup, but they had like this, they called it like a forward thinking setup where they would cut their stuff and then there would be a hole on the table where they would just put their scraps into it. Mm-hmm. So it's literally like all around you and underneath you. Right. Right. And at one point I read the work bin where the, the fire had started at one point, they had 120 layers of just scrap fabric mm-hmm. underneath this bin, like just waiting for this exact thing right so the fire spreads from the floor to the ceiling and then to all of the work tables so it's literally just like the floor the entire eighth floor on fire Mm -hmm. of course immediately the workers 600 of which were at work that day began panicking and trying to flee the fire some attempted to flee to the elevator, which could only hold 12 people at a time and was only able to make four trips before it broke down due to heat and fire. Many others tried to flee out of the stairwells to the streets, but became trapped when the crowd was unable to force open the locked doors. Um, the foreman who had the key had already escaped via another route. Typical. Right? Like, peace out, y'all. It's just ridiculous. Some chose to take the riskiest route and simply jump from the windows to escape, most of which did not survive that fall. (laughs) And when the New York City Fire Department arrived to fight the flames, they discovered that their ladders only reached to the sixth floor. Which is still surprising because, like, fire departments were barely a thing. (laughs) yes yeah and so this made and remember the it the fire's on the eighth floor so like this made it fighting the fire incredibly difficult and to add to that and this is honestly like even a little grim for my taste like the bodies of the women that were jumping out of the building were landing on their fire hoses which hampered their ability to use the fire hoses to to add water to the flames it's kind of like makes you think about like 9-11 when people were jumping out yes. of buildings like that. Yeah, 100 percent Like anytime I hear something about this, like that's the image that that is is brought to my mind. And even that, like like the Twin Towers had so many more floors and people were jumping from so much higher. Like Oh yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. The workers and executives who were on the top floor were able to escape up to the roof and then to an adjoining building. So most everybody who was on the 10th floor survived. 
There was an external fire escape that had been erected in lieu of building a third staircase inside of the building, but the structure was pretty flimsy and they used really cheap materials and it was potentially broken before the fire started. So when the stairwells became inaccessible, (laughs) this huge flood of women attempted to use a fire escape to get out, but it too soon twisted and collapsed due to excessive heat, sending 20 workers free falling approximately 100 feet to their death. This entire ordeal was finished in approximately 18 minutes. Which is fucking nuts. Yes. Like, that is not that long. I feel like any time that we talk about something in this era especially when it comes to like safety concerns or, you know, I think back to the circus fire that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Everything that they used at the time was like ultra flammable. So when something started, it went up like that. I mean, it was like, and it's all natural fibers and stuff now, which like most of our clothes have some level of like flame retardation in them Mm -hmm. because they're made out of completely, you know, plastics and things like that. Yeah, yeah, but that is like 18 minutes is nothing. It left 146 people dead. 49 had died from smoke inhalation or from being burned alive. 36 had died in the elevator shaft because along with attempting to jump out of the building, when the elevator stopped coming back up due to the heat, some people decided to try to try their luck to just d- jump down the elevator shaft. Mm-hmm. There were 58 more that died from jumping or falling from the outside of the building. Two people later died from injuries resulting from the fire. Now, following this, there was a big funeral procession through New York. More than 350,000 people marched in the funeral procession for the fire victims. And some kind of call this a signal as to what was to come. And it's interesting because... The Radium Girls and this sort of happened around the same time period where there was just this groundswell of support for workers' rights. Still a time period where business owners were hiring like mob bosses to beat the shit out of union workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that kind of thing was still happening. But the Triangle Fire fa- factory, the Triangle Factory Fire, sort of became this rallying cry for unions to demand far more worker protections, mainly involved in like health and safety. Now there was this Who huge push, <laughs> right, right. Oh my god, I can't, I can't even imagine. Like now, I work in a uh, production facility, and I've worked in production facilities for the last chunk of time, um, and I always think like. There are so many things that even now that can go wrong. Oh, yeah. But There's still just gross negligence and things like yes. that, you know? Yeah. But at least it's still, like, way safer than it was, you know, 100 years ago. So a huge push for lobbying local and state leaders began in the wake of the fire, demanding that they do something. And three months after the fire, the governor of New York, John Alden Dix signed a law giving more power to the factory investigating committee, paving the way for eight new laws covering fire safety, factory inspection and sanitation and employment rules for women and children. 
Then in 1912, the legislature managed to pass another 25 laws that turned its labor protections into the most progressive in the country at the time. Now, most of the laws that came out of this huge push in New York were highly influential in the creation of OSHA, or the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which, like you said, wasn't passed until the 1970s, which is still something mm-hmm. that's like, that was so late. <laughs> like that They were still was... fucking using asbestos and everything, you know what I mean? I know. <laughs> I, I was just talking with somebody about asbestos and how it's like, you've got, because you've got some in your basement, I think, right? The insulation? Well, it's not that much. It's like a tiny ring around a pipe. Yeah. But there's, so I have a art studio at school and it's an old, an old building that they converted into the studio spaces that used to be dormitories in the 1950s and 60s. And they can't remove the carpet because underneath the carpet is a layer of asbestos in every single room. Yes. I had a coworker of mine (laughs) who I was just talking about this with. They're redoing their basement to be like a finished basement. And they were trying to put carpet in and found out, oop. There's uh, asbestos underneath all this tile that's down here. Yeah. Can't pull it up and put carpet in. Yeah. So my house had, uh, they had an old like boiler and there was like a little thin ring of asbestos around where it went into the the ceiling, which is the floor of the house. So when yeah. they did the, when they did the inspection, he's like, it's literally, it's like a sliver and it won't affect you. It's not like he like told me about some other house where they had like asbestos lined in the walls and shit. And I was like, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and even like our old high school building, which was built like way back in the day, like there's asbestos all up in that building. It's now it's- a middle school. <laughs> yeah. Also that. Yeah. Good times, guys. <laughs> it has a fallout shelter. Yeah. Lines of asbestos. <laughs> it is a fallout shelter. <laughs> oh my god anyway so that is the story of the triangle factory fire and sort of how it helped to like influence a lot of health and safety protection laws at the time that we should be very grateful for now yes (laughs) so before you decide to engage in some incredibly unsafe work practices maybe you should uh listen to this podcast (laughs) yeah also don't but listen to this podcast first just quit your jobs, guys, and be like, you know what? You need us more than we need you. Wait a second. Is <laughs> it? I feel like that's already happening. Oh, wait. That is happening. Oh, wait. That oh, is wait. happening. Society is finally cannibalizing itself. <laughs> it's great. It's fun to watch, for sure. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Nicole. Sarah. Hillary. And we're the hosts of the Feminine Mistake Podcast. Each month, we sit down with a guest to watch movies that are 20 years or older. And see how they hold up to today's modern feminist lens. Why do mermaids have such low self-esteem? Why is it so funny when men take care of babies? What exactly did Jenny die of in Love Story? These are the kind of hard questions we ask ourselves on the Feminine Mistake Podcast. The Feminine Mistake Podcast. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean. Do you guys think that was okay? Yeah, I don't know. We sounded kind of shrill. Really? Yeah, women's voices are just so grating on the radio. Yeah. Oh, man, you're right. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard those guys over at the Nerdist or last podcast on the left? I mean, they're just biologically more funny than we are. So true. Yeah. So we talked about tea last time, I think, right? (laughs) We sure are. Mm, Tell me about that tea. 
So if you're blissfully unaware of what's happening in our lives and don't watch our social media every rubes, we <laughs> are <laughs> ambassadors for Casting Whimsy Tea Shop in Woodstock, Illinois. If you like tea as much as I absolutely love tea. I don't know if you know this about me. I know Vicky does because she bought me tea for Christmas. <laughs> I did. I did do that. But I have like every conceivable variety of tea. And I love this place because it's just like really good, fun people who create amazing blends of tea and delicious cookies and marshmallows. And they have the cutest names. And it's just amazing. So we hope that you check them out. And if you want to check them out, you can go to castingwhimsy.com. Find whatever tea you like. They have herbal, black, green, oolong, whatever your preference is. Maybe get some marshmallows. That's my favorite, along with them cookies. And you can order that, have it shipped directly to your house. If you're a local, pop into the shop. It's on the Woodstock Square. It's adorable and cute, and it looks like a little tea shop from England. It's very cute. I love that. But we can help you out and give you 10% off if you use BTC pod at checkout or just mention us when you go into the store. Yeah. And get delicious things at a discount. And get that tasty tea. So Not good. that tasty, tasty. Yes. Tasty tea. Tasty. tasty. <laughs> All right, so if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more like this at badtastepodcast.com. There you will also find links to our merch if you want to get like a t-shirt or something. Mm-hmm. You can also find the links to our donate page if you want to support the show. We would love it for it. It literally Sweet. just goes right back into the show. Other than that, I think, is that all we got this week? Yeah, we'll talk about Fringe Festival festival at another another time yes. to tell you what happened all the, the yes. goofy things and details yes. after we fully decompressed but yeah oh my god we'll tell yeah. you when we went and saw all the fun things that people yelled at us from the audience you know <laughs> <laughs> last time last time it was all about the accountants i think yes i Janelle. talked about a case and i made a joke about how i do not like accountants and the entire audience was fucking accountants so yeah. fine. Janelle fine. single-handedly <laughs> offended every accountant in the room um, that's what i do you know i just i just narrow down our demographic and i insult the shit out <laughs> so on that note our sound and editing is by tiff fullman our music is by jason zachowski the enigma This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another. The next year, the U.S. Department of Energy, at the request of the state... Oh, God damn it, Hans. Come on. All right. Hold, please. My dog is barking at people outside. Hans, you're such a dick. So close to being done. <laughs>